good news. That's great. Because that's what I got for you. I got some good news for you. You see, we've been going through a series uh, this summer uh, titled, appropriately, The Good News. Uh, And we've been focusing on, in this series, what makes the gospel news on the one hand and good on the other hand. We've been talking about how uh, the gospel is the good and true account that God in the person of Jesus came to the earth, died on the cross, and rose again from the dead. That is the actual good news message. And last week I, I asked, who, who believes that's good news? And, and many of you, I, and, and perhaps all of you, you know, said, that is good news. But it's, it's not so much that we need to be convinced that this in itself is the good news message, uh, that this is the content of the good news, but what makes this newsworthy to us and what makes this good for us? You see, in order for something to be both newsworthy and good, it has to, on the one hand, be relevant to the listener. That would make it newsworthy to you and not just something about someone who lived 2,000 years ago. But it also would have to benefit you as the listener in order for it to be good news. And so, again, we're not so much talking about what the good news message is, but rather why is that message, in fact, good news? If you were with us last week, we talked about that the good news, the event of Jesus, it means that the righteous God declares us right when we put our faith in a faithful Christ. This was a summary statement for what justification means. That justification means to declare someone in the right, and that's what God did to us. That we found ourselves to be in the wrong. We found ourselves to be part of the problem of this world. We found ourselves to be in uh, positions of uh, bullying and bossing sometimes, and, and, and we know the proclivities that we have. And that this creates perhaps angst with God. That if, we, if, if we're actually the people who are in the wrong and if God's going to bring a righteous judgment on us, then that, that might be scary. But Jesus was faithful to the cross, faithful to put our sin to death. And so when we put our faith in a faithful Christ, that's when God declares us right. What's true of him is true of us. So then, what does justification really come out to but actually peace with God? Peace with God. But I want to talk about this term, right. So, the righteous God declares us right. We we use this word in our world to mean a bunch of different things. On On the one hand, right means not left. Uh, so that's one way that we use the word. But we also use this word, especially in connection to things that pertaining to justice, setting things right. What, is, what ultimately is the right way to do things or what creates a right society? How do we go about things in the right way? How do we get things right again? And I think... I think when we think along these lines and and what it means to set the world right or to set relationships right or our community right 
or our family's right. This, this, word, this other word may come to mind, hope. I, I want to maybe take a, a, a broad view and move in narrowly. So if we start broadly and think of a global setting right project, and perhaps we think of things like Iran, China, North Korea, the Middle East, Israel, and, and how, how, how does Jerusalem play into that? Or the embassy, how does America's foreign policy fit into all of this? And we can hear words uh, thrown out about, well, our only hope is to do this, or, or put your hope in, in this agenda and, and we'll, be, we'll be on the right track. On a national scale, we have a very divisive society and it seems like it's growing ever more divided between left and right and alt-left and alt-right. And people who say, ah, I'm really in the middle of the road, but then you start talking to them and you realize, okay, you're really a right-winger, but you kind of want to think that you're in the middle or you're a left-winger and it's obvious, but you don't know that and I'll just listen to you and that's fine. <laughs> and then there's just people who want to avoid the conversation altogether because it's a mess. It's a mess. And we find that there's... Uh, different version of rights. It, 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 we think of, what does it mean for someone to say, well, that's my civil right, or that's my gender right, or that's my uh, right as a woman, or my right as a man, or my right as a police officer, or my right, uh, my racial rights. Or who gets to say, where, where do rights come from? Who says, that's my right? I'd actually argue that this version of justice that we have going on in our society is like justice, it's like a boat without a rudder. It's justice without a goal. It's justice without really knowing, well, what are we aiming for? Or what is is the kind of world that we're looking forward towards that then helps us to understand, well, what is right? And we can also bring it down to a local level. You think of our community around Gloucester. It's rife with addictions. There's family problems, broken homes, uh, families without fathers, marriages um, that have been broken up and remarried and broken up again and remarried and broken up again. Or maybe even on a personal level. Think of the family members that you have that there's just discord with and you've, you don't really know how to set that relationship right or, or you don't you don't really know how to uh, talk to your kids and, and how to bring them into right line with what's good for them. And what, what is our hope? What is the plan for change that is going to set things right again? I think the bad news that we all feel is that nothing seems right and all seems hopeless. This is where we need to hear the good news of the gospel. Remember, the gospel is about Jesus. And so what it means is that we have been set right. That's what we learned last week. We have been set right, but not just for ourselves so that way we can just have peace with God. We have also been set right in order to reflect God's hope and glory out into the world. Where, where am I getting this from? Last week we took a look at this passage in Romans 5. Um, we're going to be back in Romans today. 
You don't necessarily have to turn there just yet, but just taking a look at this, we, we saw here that, I'll read this out, it says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Therefore, since we have been justified, declared in the right, we have peace with God. That was what the good news meant last week. That's what we explored. But there was this second thing that, that we, 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 we didn't really look at, or that's a kind of nice, neat and tidy thing. Okay, so God has set something right in me, but, but the world's a lot bigger than me, and, and, and God, God so loved the world, right? Well, that's the second part of this. Since we have been justified with God, we also boast in the hope of the glory of God. The hope of the glory of God. This is all about our project, that we have now been set right in order to reflect God's hope and glory out into the world. In order to explore what this means and and, and how Paul thinks this through in terms of good news and what does it look like for us practically and, and what is this hope that God has had all this time. We're going to be taking a look at Romans 8, uh, verses 18 through 30. Uh, if you would turn with me to your Black Pew Bible and page 916, you'll find the passage there. And we're going to be taking a look at what is this world's hope. And what does it mean for the glory of God uh, to be on display? What is the glory of God in the first place? And so we're going to be taking a look there, uh, starting in chapter 8, and we're just going to start with verses 18 through 21. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This is about the creation itself being set right. But it's not just about the creation being set right on its own. It's about the children of God. It's Despite human sin, God's hope was always to reflect his glory out into the world through humans. That has always been God's plan for the world. Where do we see it? We see in verse 18 that the glory will be revealed in us. We see it at the end of verse 21, the glory of the children of God. And it's the creation, it's in hope that the creation itself will be liberated by that event. Somehow the children of God are glorified. And this raises a question. What exactly does glory mean? What is this glory of the children of God? Or, or what, in, what is the glory of God in the first place? 
I think, I, w- I want you to think for a moment, and if someone just said, glory to you, what, what image comes to your mind? What does it look like? Glory. Maybe it's something bright and shiny. I think I might have even just heard someone whisper sun. Um, something that's just splendorous and magnificent to behold. And while I, I, I don't want to say that glory is something less than this or that's not what it is, I think there's something a little deeper or a little bit uh, more overarching of what glory is and the splendorness and the shininess and the brightness is really a manifestation of that. And so what is glory? I believe as we look through Scripture, we will find that glory is the good and wise rule of God. Glory is the good and wise rule of God over this world. And let's be clear, this isn't a tyrant. This isn't something that's a dictatorship. This is something that is good. He created the world good, good, very good. That's what Genesis 1 says. Everything in this world that we hold near and dear is all because God was just being lavish, showing off beauty, sharing love and splendor. And he had a right vision, a hope for how that world would function. And so I would say that the glory of God is... uh, Here, I'll go back, sorry. The glory of God... is the good and wise rule that he displays. So then what's the glory of man or the glory of humans? The glory of humans is to reflect the good and wise rule of God. The glory of man is to reflect the good and wise rule of God. There's a psalm that brings this out really well. It's Psalm 8. And uh, the psalmist is reflecting, it's very clear, on Genesis 1 and reflecting on the moon and the stars that you you chose to govern over the night and day and uh, how wonderful the creation is. And then it gets to this point, right when the psalmist would get to the point in Genesis 1 where humans were made. He says, What is man that you are mindful of? him? For you created him a little lower than God. Wow. That is the glory of man. It's not our own glory. It's that we get to reflect the glory of God out into the world. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the... I would say that glory is like a task. But the thing is, the Bible follows this pattern that God gives humans the task of glory to reflect the good and wise rule of God out into the world. Unsurprisingly and tragically, the next thing is sin. That humans seize autonomy, they reject God's authority and seek to establish it on their own terms. And this ultimately ends up with exile. Because if you think about it, if God sets up a pedestal, where on this pedestal he's going to put a representative figure, and that this figure is going to show the whole world this is what God's like. This is what his good and wise rule is like. I will show you. But then that representative figure goes and distorts the image of God. Really just shows themselves rather than God himself. And so it's a bad image. 
the necessary thing you do is you take that representative figure and you put them out from their place. They don't belong on this pedestal anymore. Not just as punishment, but because they're not doing the job right. They're not representing uh, who they're supposed to be representing. And so we're going to take a first look. Where do we first see it? I've already brought it up, really. We first see it in Genesis 1. So God makes this amazing world. And then in verse 26 in Genesis 1, he says, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. This was God's plan, his hope for the world to reflect his glory, his good and wise rule. And, and we get this term that you've probably heard before, image, the image of God. We were made in the image of God. We say that we are image bearers. That is just a synonym for this t- glory task. We were made to reflect the good and wise rule of God. Where am I getting rule? So that they may rule over the fish. Let us make mankind in our image so that they may rule, reflecting, not ruling on their own terms, but reflecting God's good and wise rule. It's a creative and lavish rule that is for the earth's good, good, very good. But then we all know what happens next in the story. Humanity sins, and and, and this is so paradigmatic. It's so... um, it's, it's, it's so what we all would have done. It's not simply a story about getting hungry and eating a piece of fruit. It's a story about rejecting God's good and wise will and what He says is good for us. And saying, no, no, no. I think I can choose what's good for myself. I think we all know that proclivity in us all too well. And so... Sin happened, and of course, then exile happened. So in uh, Genesis 3.23, the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Banished, exiled, taken out of his position as ruler over the garden, reflecting the good and wise will of God. This creates a problem. This kind of goes back to the bad news that we were, were talking about. Okay, so if God's plan, his hope was to have humans as stewards over the garden, reflecting his good wise rule, then is that plan up? Is this all out? Is there any hope? Well, this leads us to the next story that is kind of within the human story. And it's a story that we talk about, we know, but I think perhaps sometimes we struggle to understand how does this story relate to us? And it's the story of Israel. What is the relationship between the Old and the New Testament? What what was it about Israel that God chose them? Or or what was their purpose? What was their task? Well, just a few chapters after the fall of man, the fall of humanity, God chooses a family. Abraham's family. And God says to Abraham in Genesis 12.3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is now Abraham's task. Now the glory task. 
reflecting the good and wise rule of God is done through him, but it, it has a little bit of a twist of it. It has a healing element to it. It's not just that Abraham's going to show what the good and wise rule is, but somehow, and there's a blessed theological word, somehow, somehow through Abraham's family, the world is going to be set right. Somehow people are going to be set right. Societies will be set right. The families on earth will be blessed through you. Paul, actually looking back at this moment in Galatians 3, he calls it the gospel. He says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. The the Greek word uh, for Gentiles is ethne. Ethnic. It's nations. It kind of can be translated either way. So justify the nations by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. And what is it? That all nations will be blessed through you. Isn't that interesting? We've been talking about the gospel. Last week we talked about being justified, declared in the right. Well, here it is. We have being justified, and that was the gospel kind of like preached in advance to Abraham that through him all the nations will be blessed. This gets picked up a little bit later on as Abraham's family grows and grows and grows and they're down in Egypt and they get liberated out of slavery and they come to Mount Sinai in order to receive the law. And the law is kind of like, it's not just the rules and regulations, but it's the life, the culture that when you live this way, then you're reflecting the good and wise rule of God out into the world. You are to be a people, a city on the hill, a a light to the nations. right before they receive the law, this is what God says to them in Exodus 19.6. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. A kingdom of priests. Whereas humanity had the task of being image bearer and that was a synonym for their glory task, Israel had the task of being a kingdom of priests that through them the world would be blessed. Through them the good and wise rule of God would go out into the world and make a difference. And again, there, that blessed word, somehow. Somehow this, this is going to happen. But the pattern continues. And we all know they sinned. There's a, a, a rabbi who once said that Jews are um, just like any other human, but maybe only more so. The sin problem was not absent from them. It was in them just as well. And Paul gives us a little glimpse of what this means because, again, it's not just that they sinned in the same way that humans sinned. They had a task to also bring the nations back in, to be blessing to the nations. And so in Romans 2, 17 through 24, uh, I've got some highlighted uh, versions. i got a Black Pew Bible right here, so I'll quickly uh, open up to that. I want to read out for you guys verses 17 through 24. But I want you to highlight these specific points. Because I think sometimes we think that in this justification talk, the story basically goes, the Gentiles were sinful, the Jews were sinful, uh, but it's okay, God dealt with sin through Jesus. That's a parody It's mostly right, but there's an added element that we need to get straight. 
So if we look, starting in verse 17 in chapter 2, he says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, here's the important part. If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, that's the priestly kingdom task. That's the blessing to the nation's task, that they would be a guide to the blind a light to those in, who are in darkness. He goes on in verse uh, 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Here's the sin. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Isaiah. The people who are supposed to be blessing to the nations, the nations are blaspheming the name of God because of Israel's sin. They're looking at the person who's on the pedestal and saying, if that is how you act and you're reflecting your God, then I don't want any part of that God. That's no hope. That's not right. And so, the necessary thing that God had to do is exile, removing His people out from their pedestal position and taking them out from their land. This is where the Old Testament kind of ends. They come back into their land and they're in eager anticipation of how is God going to be faithful to His promises. What's going to happen? And, and here's actually kind of the issue with that. This was a promise by God. Through Abraham's family, the world would be blessed. Through Israel. This was God's hope. This was his plan. And this kind of creates a potential problem. If Israel fails, then is God a liar? Paul actually kind of like teases with this question. Just a few verses after this thing I just read, in, in chapter 3, verse 3 of Romans, he says, what if, what if some Jews were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? If God promised it would be this way, he can't just do something else. Paul quickly says one of his like kind of famous phrases, by no means. And so he holds out hope that it can't be that way. He holds on to that Theological term, somehow. Somehow, it's going to happen through Israel. Somehow, he's going to set the humanity project right again. And I think we all know how. You see, the bad news is, at this point, it seems like nothing seems right and all seems hopeless, but the good news means that Jesus set everything right in order to reflect God's hope and glory out into the world Jesus was the faithful Israelite. Last, last week we talked about this term, the faithful Christ. It doesn't just mean that Jesus was faithful to the Father's command that he must go to death to bear the sins of the world. The bearing the sins of the world task, that's what Israel was supposed to do. They were supposed to undo the sin problem. And Jesus did that as the faithful Israelite. 
He was faithful to the long-standing promise of God that through Abraham's family, the world would be blessed. And so, as Paul said, the gospel got preached to Abraham long ago that God would justify the nations, saying that through you, all the nations will be blessed. But he's also the faithful human. He's the true image bearer. He's the true priest king. He has done the glory project that through him, God's hope and glory is spreading out through the world and it's affecting us. And I want you to take a good look at this image because this image, I think, is pretty magnificent. When I found it, I was like, wow, that's like everything in one image. You've got Jesus spreading his arms out on the cross as an image of dealing with the sin problem. And then you see that what this has done, it's incorporated all the people into himself. That when people put their faith in the faithful Christ, they are in the right. They're declared right. So they're in him. They're identified with him. And so you see all these people making up his body, his hands, his feet. He's got a crown over his head. So he's doing the glory project. Through him, the hope and glory of God, the good and wise rule of God is going out into the world. But if we're in him, then it's not just him. If we are the hands and feet of Jesus, then we have been set right in order to reflect God's hope and glory out into the world. That's what the good news means for us. We have been set right in order to reflect God's hope and glory out into the world. And so now I want to shift. We've covered a lot of ground a lot of biblical ground sweeping from Genesis 1 all the way through, I would even say, to, to Revelation 21 and 22 where there's this vision of a creation set right. And we see it here even again. I want to read out one more time, Romans 8, 18-21. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The creation is eager to be liberated, not not from humanity, but for humanity brought into the freedom and the glory, the good and wise stewardship, the rule that humans can uh, reflect from God to the world. So, the good news means we have been set right in order to reflect God's hope and glory out into the world. So, how do we respond? Well, The good news means we can respond by, first of all, right from what we just read, we can be a little taste of future hope and glory now. You see, the creation is longing, anticipating that future day that will come when everything finally will be set right again. And it's kind of been brought into the present in Jesus There's this foretaste of it or a down payment that says that is definitely going to happen. Nothing's going to change that fact because it's already happened in him. And we know it's starting to happen in us. We know that our lives are being transformed. 
we know that our, we're not the same people that we were. And so when we are doing the justice projects, we're doing it because the Spirit of God has been poured out in our hearts. That actually comes right from uh, the passage just prior to this. It talks about how the same Spirit that was in Christ is in us now, and so we're co-heirs with Christ. And so God is doing His work through us in His Spirit. And so we, we talked about how the world does justice maybe like a boat without a rudder, not really knowing what their goal is. But when we as a church do projects like Amira, working with those who have been abused, or, or we go out to the beaches and we clean up our city, or when we go to the open door and we feed the hungry, we're not just simply doing what everyone else is doing. We're actually giving people a little taste. This is a little bit of a taste of what God's whole Setting Right project is about. But perhaps you might be thinking of some objections to this. But, so we just looked at this sin problem that happened in humanity, in Israel. Don't we still struggle with temptation? Aren't, aren't we still people that uh, are, are prone to wander? Well, we have to remember... Jesus is the one who fulfilled the task. And He's the one who dealt with our sin problem. So when we sin, that is when Jesus' work gets applied. That's when grace gets applied. But then this kind of raises an objection that even Paul anticipates in, in his uh, in his letter to the Romans, he states in verse 1 of chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And then he quickly says, by no means. If the Spirit of God is in you, although we still battle temptations, he is orienting you away from sin and towards Christ. Again, we, we know this. We know that our lives are being transformed. We're not dominated by sin. We may still struggle and strive against the flesh, but we're really dominated by God's Spirit. He's at work in us. So this seems all neat and tidy. We uh, can be a little taste of future hope and glory, but, but there's some things that are really outside of our control and we don't really know what to do about them. So I want to just quickly go through uh, some of the next few verses and show that in true pastoral fashion, Paul helps us to figure out how might we apply this, this good news that we uh, have been called to be part of God's setting right project. You see, the second thing that we can do is anticipate the ultimate future hope and glory. Remember that this is future hope and glory. We can be something in the present that looks forward to it, but ultimately... It is a future hope and glory that God accomplishes. We don't build the kingdom. God does that. But we build for the kingdom. But So if we look in verses 22 to 25, we know that the, the whole creation has been groaning as uh, in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to some chip 
the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Again, we anticipate with patience the ultimate future hope and glory. It, it talks here about the redemption of our bodies. Something that's outside of our control that we can only do a band-aid solution on, sickness, illness, and death. Injustice to the body. How do we set that right? There are all these like weird theories about uploading your brain to the computer or something like that, and I'm not even going to get into anything like that. Jesus has a different solution, and it's resurrection. That the injustice that the body faces, death is not a friend. Paul says death is the enemy, but it's been defeated. And we know that what happened to Jesus will happen to us. And so we will see hurt and pain and strife, but we groan inwardly longing for the redemption of our bodies and we wait for it patiently. The third thing uh, that we do is we pray over the lack of future hope and glory that we see now. You see, if we read in verses 26 through 27, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Another translation says, with sighs too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. What do we do about Iran, China, the Middle East, North Korea? What do we do about our divisive society? Left, right, alt-right, alt-left, middle. What do we do about our local community rife with addiction? broken homes, broken families. What do we do about our personal family relationships where discord just seems inevitable? Groan with the Spirit of God. It grieves Him. And so let it grieve you. Pray over it and know that you're praying along with the interceding Spirit of God. And last, trust in God's promise for future hope and glory. And this is how Paul ends the passage. And he ties it up really, really nicely. And we know that in all things, God's, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God works for the good of those who love him. Despite everything that we see or the struggle that we have in the world or, or where see, things seem hopeless, we have the down payment. We have Jesus crucified, raised from the dead. We know that justice will happen. We know that things will be set right. And so we know that those he justified he also glorified. This is the good news. We have been set right in order to reflect God's hope and glory out into the world. This is good news. So, 
I might suggest two things for this upcoming week. What about tomorrow? What about Monday? What about this time when you're back at work or you're at home with your kids or you're going out on vacation or you're talking with your neighbors? How can you be a reflection of God's hope and glory by the power of the Spirit out into the world? Who are the people that come to your mind? What are the situations that you can think of that you've been feeling a burden? I think I need to address this. I think I need to have a sit-down conversation with this person. I think maybe I need to advocate for this. I think I, think I want to talk to my small group about this. Also, what is God placing on your heart to be praying for? What are the things that you just feel burdened about? What are the things that you hear about on the news or you see in the newspaper or you see around you in your community, in Gloucester, in your family that just seem utterly hopeless to you? The things that you might even feel like, what is the use of even praying for this? Groan with the Spirit of God. Pray for these things. And in this way, we will show that we have been set right in order to be a reflection of God's hope and glory into the world. In a few moments, we're going to be uh, taking communion, which is such a great thing for us to do after a message like this. It recognizes that Jesus is the good news and that Jesus is the one who uh, reflected glory and gave us hope, dealt with our sin, brought us in, uh, and, and we get to take of the body and blood and be identified in Him. As we transition towards that, I pray that um, we would reorient our focus uh, to what He is doing in us, what He's stirring in us, how He's leading us out from a life of sin, and into hope and glory. Would you pray with me? God, in these last two weeks, we have, we have seen that you, in fact, are a righteous God. You're a glorious God. You're a hopeful God. And there is this amazing and yet even bizarre thing that you do. You partner with humanity. You don't boss and bully humanity around, but actually, even when we sin and we have fallen from you, you've fixed us. You've set us right. And you've brought us into your project of setting the world right. You've given us an amazing task. What is man that you're mindful of him? Yet, you have made him a little lower than God. God, where we are weak, we pray that you would build us up for the task. We pray that you would give us eyesight of compassion into our world, into our uh, nation, into our community, into our families, into our neighborhood. We pray that you would help us to reflect your hope and glory out into the world. And we also pray for the many things that seem 
out of reach for us. Give us creativity uh, to address such issues. And also give us patience as we trust that you will work things for good for those who are called according to your purpose. For those whom you justified, you also glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.